Daily Gazette Company presents the Parting Shots Podcast. Now, here's your host, Daily Gazette Sports Editor, Ken Schott. Thank you, Scott Geezy, and welcome to the Parting Shots Podcast. Available wherever you get your podcast. Subscribe today. Thanks for joining me from the Parting Shots Podcast studio in Schenectady, New York. We have another great show for you. Our friend Ken Fang of Awful Announcing will be joining us a little bit later. We have a long discussion about uh, several sports media topics and one non-sports media topic. We're going to have a little talking night court segment. Uh, it's one of our favorite shows of the revival uh, this year, and uh, we'll discuss what ha- if it's good or not. So uh, a little off the beaten path, but uh, I think you'll enjoy that. Uh, the East NCAA hockey tournament gets underway Thursday. The uh, pairings were announced Sunday night, and uh, four ECAC hockey teams have made it. Uh, Cornell will get underway Thursday. They're playing in the Manchester, New Hampshire regional. They'll be playing at 5:30 against Denver. Then um, the uh, other three ECAC hockey teams will play Friday. Uh, two of those teams will be in Bridgeport uh, at with Total Mortgage Arena. The last time I was in Bridgeport, it was called Webster Bank Arena. So it tells you how long I've been uh, away from Bridgeport. Um, Harvard, which finished second uh, in the ECAC hockey regular season, will take on Ohio State at 2 o'clock. And that will be followed at 5.30 by Quinnipiac, the number two overall seed and the ECAC hockey regular season champion. They'll take on Merrimack. And the other team, I have a little bit of surprise, and uh, I have to say I'm very happy for them, uh, Colgate. Uh, Colgate uh, stunned uh, ECAC hockey fans uh, and uh, by winning the uh, tournament title last weekend in Lake Placid. It was their first title since 1990 and the first one for a longtime head coach, Don Vaughn. And I, I've known Don since he started uh, at Colgate and uh, we've been you know, friends for a long time. And we, it, it was, I was happy for him. I mean, it, it, he's been there a long time and they've had some great teams and uh, just hasn't been they haven't been able to get that tournament title and uh, they lost the union in 2014 it's sort of a you know similar scenario uh, in 2023 they uh, eliminated Quinnipiac in double overtime and they beat the uh, Quinnipiac at there the was double overtime in 2014 in Lake Placid but lost union in the um, championship round but this time in the championship round Saturday they held on to beat Harvard three to two and uh, take the title and they'll face Michigan in the Allentown, Pennsylvania Regional. And if you are familiar with uh, Colgate and Michigan, you'll go back to 2000 at then Pepsi Arena in Albany, the first round of the East Regional. A controversial game, uh, Michigan and Colgate went to overtime. Colgate looked like it had scored a game-winning goal and there was wait not count it. And they did have video review back then, but they refused to uh, request. You know, they didn't go to video review to check it. Uh, the, the, at that time, the coaches did not have a challenge, and it was up to the referee, and they decided not to look at it. And then Michigan ended up winning the game in overtime. Uh, I talked with uh, Don Vaughn about uh, winning the ECAC hockey tournament title, and also talked to him about that game uh, 23 years ago. And I had to be a little bit of a smart ass and I had to bring up that uh, Union game back in February when he pulled uh, his goaltender, Carter Guylander, um, for an extra attacker in the uh, final two and a half seconds of the second period with Union leading one nothing in the faceoff in the Union zone and a backfire when Nick Young scored into the empty net and it ended up, ended up being 
the uh, game-winning goal. So uh, here's my conversation with Don Vaughn. Well, Don, uh, welcome to the podcast, and uh, congratulations uh, on winning the uh, ECAC tournament title, The uh, your first, uh, the second in school history. The last one, of course, was 1990. What what was the feeling like Saturday night as that clock went, wound down against Harvard and the Crimson's pressuring there, and uh, you end up winning it? Yeah, I mean, it was, it was overwhelming, quite frankly. Um, you know, you and I have known each other for a long time. It's... It's been a process over a number of years, and you know we've been to you know the the, the, the championship weekend I think twelve times in my tenure here, but never came home with uh, you know with the trophy. So it, I just needed a second to compose myself after the, the buzzer sounded, and then and then we let the celebration con- you know uh, begin. So um, yeah, it's just a feeling that uh, you know that a lot of hard work has gone into it over the years. We've stuck with it, and um, it was just great to be able to celebrate the championship with a lot of my family present, which was really nice. And uh, certainly a lot of our parents uh, of our current team and, and, you know, most importantly, my assistant coaches and the, and the, and the teammates, uh, the, you know, the, the guys on the team themselves. So it was, uh, yeah, it was pretty emotional and uh, just an amazing feeling. I mean, you, you had to go through Quinnipiac, which, you know, obviously they've been a great team in this league for the last few years, but what was the key to uh, you know, you did beat them uh, back in uh, January at at, at home. Uh, what was the key to, to do it again? Yeah, I think I think your point, uh, you know, that you just mentioned, the fact that we had beaten them once already this year, uh, played them tough down there in a late uh, late goal three two loss. So I mean, before you can you know you know before you can even think about winning, you have to believe that you can win. And that was the first step going in. Uh, I have to give Dana Borges and Chris Azano a lot of credit. They did a, a great job in preparing the team to play, you know, that high-skilled offensive uh, offensive team. And so we were, we were prepared. We felt good going in, again, knowing that we had beaten them. But we, we were super prepared for that game. And I was really proud of how, you know, we stuck to the game plan and our structure and how we wanted to play. And, you know, it still came down to what? A double overtime, you know, great goal by Ross Mitten. So uh, even as prepared as we were and as much as we believed, it was a battle. And, uh, you know, very emotional win for us, and, and that carried over to Saturday. Yeah, I mean, obviously the double overtime, the emotion. Is it fortunate that you had the early game, and that way you still you had enough time to get some rest, as opposed to what I recall in 2014 when you went uh, multiple overtimes against Quinnipiac in that semifinal and Union was waiting for you? Yeah, I mean that was that was huge for us. I think, it, especially early in the game. I mean, you know, against Harvard the next day, you know, we just seemed to have a little bit more jump in our stride. Obviously, you know, they they made it close at the end, and then they really came after us. But you know, you have to expect that. I mean, uh, somebody once said to me that you know, teams have a tendency to go into a shell. I, I I don't think we went into a shell. I just think that Harvard really wanted to win that game, and they came at us with everything they had. But for us to have uh, a little bit more time to to recoup and rest and get hydrated. Uh, played a big part, I believe, in Saturday's win. Yeah, uh, you had to really. I mean, their season. I mean, you didn't win a, a game regulation. I think it was the final ten games of the regular season, uh, <laughs> and you had that weird loss against Union, which I'll ask you. I want to ask you a little bit more about that in just a bit. But to go through that last stretch of games, a lot of close ones, a lot of overtime games. In retrospect, was that a character builder for this team? I do. I, I think that uh, we were, you know, we were prepared. We were sort of battle ready. You know, I mean, we, we had to compete hard 
for all of those games down the stretch. And I think that really that hardened us. And I think uh, it didn't uh, it, it didn't phase us that we were actually going to overtime um, against Quinnipiac. We we knew that we'd been in a number of those games, and the way we looked at those games was. You know, not the fact that we didn't win in regulation, but that we didn't lose. You know, so we we kind of turned the tides on that. I mean, we all know one more point would have got us the bye in home ice, but uh, that didn't phase us either. We, we we just prepared like we always do, and we were ready to go when we went up to St. Lawrence and, and just kept, you know, just kept uh, kept this thing moving forward. Yeah, does that, you know, even though you you finished fifth, and I mean, you look at that not getting the bye, I mean, it was a little bit of a disappointment, but you had to play. But, of course, you had the, this the one game first round this year, so you, you took care of that business against Dartmouth. And then you fall behind 3 nothing in the first game at St. Lawrence. Uh, I look at that game, and you come back to win that one in overtime. Does that, that, to me, that showed the character of the team, just be able to, to battle back 3 nothing on the road. Yeah, no question. And we were disappointed. You know, we, you know, we got the, the, the shootout win at, uh, at Brown to end the season, but that didn't get us what we wanted, which was a top four seed and a bye. So that stung a little bit. Um, and then with the change in the format this year with only one, a one game playoff in that first round, those are scary games. I mean, anything can happen in one game playoff. Um, and, you know, again, we prepared, we focused on, you know, what we needed to do to get ready for a Dartmouth team that was going to play desperate. We knew that. Um, but yeah, we, we wanted to, we wanted that buy and we didn't get it. So we had to re, you know, we had to reset. We just hit the reset button, went back to work and focused like hell on, on playing Dartmouth and getting that. And then we could focus on whatever came after it. Well, let me ask you about the format. Cause I know I've talked to a number of coaches and in particular, uh, your former player, Ron Fody down to Princeton. He, he doesn't like it. I mean, even though he won the game against union, uh, in that first round, uh, it seems like the coaches were dead set against the change, and yet the administrators went ahead, went ahead, uh, went ahead anyway and changed the format. Is, is it a good change? I mean, I, I don't like it. No. I mean, as a coach and someone who's been around for a while, my position has always been you should give your higher seeds the best opportunity to advance. You know, that's a body of work over the course of a season. And even though, the, you know, even though the margins are very close in our league normally, I still think we need to give our top seeds the best opportunity to advance. And the best way to do that is to allow them to play potentially three games in their home building. Um, on top of that, I remember when we made some of these decisions, we did it also in an effort to give our, our Ivy League, you know, uh, opponents an opportunity to play more games, mm -hmm. which at that time we were told, you know, by the number crunchers that the more games we played in turn, you know, in, within the league against each other, the better chance that would help more of our teams get in the tournament. Again, I'm not a math guy, but that was the message that was delivered to us. And that's how we initially presented it to the administrators. Um, they obviously have other reasons. Um, you'd have to ask them exactly what those are. But for me, um, I think we should still be playing two out of three at home, especially in a conference where, you know, our Ivy friends, are limited in terms of the number of games they can play on a regular season. Okay, let me go back to that Union game, February 3rd at your building there. You're going to bring that up, right? <laughs> <laughs> in, in all the years I have covered hockey and have been around hockey, I, I've never seen 
the play work where the, the team scores a, a goal to trying to get you know with the extra attacker. But to see it happen to backfire the way it did, I would I would, I, I was stunned because I was all set to tweet it was you know one nothing after two periods. So I was watching the game at the office, and all of a sudden you know, John McGraw says they score. It's like what? Wait, wait. and then the, the the lights start going out, and as if Colgate had scored the goal. I was like, what's? I mean, what did you think at that moment? Because like I said, I've never seen that happen, and I can only yeah. imagine what was going through your head. Uh, yeah, I mean, obviously in hindsight, I would never have done it. Uh, however, I mean, what we're talking about is I pulled the goalie with less than three seconds. It was 2.8 seconds left. And that's something I've done a lot. You know, we made a couple of errors in terms of, uh, you know, how, how we played it. I, I was expecting our guys to just push the puck to the net, you know, and if it goes forward, there's, you know, not much of a chance of it going to be down the ice and 2.8 seconds but uh as it worked out it was it was a perfect storm they won a clean draw to the defenseman underneath the circle and he hammered it the length of the ice and you know there was 0.05 seconds left when it crossed the line so yeah needless to say i didn't feel very good about myself in that decision and you know in hindsight again probably wouldn't have done it in a one nothing game um i think if you're down by two or three why not give it a try? Mm-hmm. But uh, I've done it multiple times, and, and obviously that's the first time anything like that's ever happened. Yeah. So I had, to, I had to apologize to my team for, for making that call. And, but, and, uh, and the thing was, know, Nick, that, yeah, that goal, yeah, that goal Nick Young scored there ended up being the game-winning goal. So that had to be more, <laughs> just like crazy stuff yeah. there. Like I said, like yeah. I said, I, I, in all the years I've covered this sport, I've n- never seen that. I mean, I've seen goal, uh, goal scored into an empty net on a, a delayed penalty a couple of times, but right, so, right. But right. what happened? It was just like I said, I was just a, a, a crazy play. So you well, that'll, that'll be one for the history books that you and I can talk about a number of years from now. Yeah. Well, the funny thing is also the, the camera never panned toward the net because it stopped right at center ice, and that's why I, I, I got everybody. You know, I think even John got fooled by. The fact that it scored, I mean, that was just, we, you didn't see it till our know, replay afterwards, but uh, well, that, that'll, that'll be the last time we'll talk about that. All right, good, thanks. <laughs> well, let's talk about the opponent uh, in the uh, NCAA's uh, tournament coming up on Friday in Allentown, Pennsylvania, Michigan. I'm going to bring something up, another probably a bad memory, uh, 23 years ago at the East Regional, first round in Albany, where your guys, yeah, I think it was Andy McDonald scored, and they didn't count it, and they uh, refused to go to replay, and then uh, Michigan ends up winning in overtime. What do you remember about that day? Oh, I remember it vividly. I mean, it actually ended up changing the rule in the NCAA where all goals are now reviewed. Um, and I was on the rules committee at that time, too, so I had to suffer through it at our, our summer meetings. It became known as the sort of the Colgate rule, yeah. but uh, it actually was Michael Malley who okay. uh, who turned and fired from the corner. I can remember it like it was yesterday. It hit the goalie skate right closest to the post and was actually clearly over the goal line had the referee chosen to go to video review. Um, so it was heartbreaking, obviously. They went on to win about six minutes later. Um, but, you know, my athletic director at the time was Mark Murphy, and before I went to the press conference after the game, he needed me to know ahead of time because at that moment we weren't sure because the referee said that, you know, he, he wasn't going to go to video review, so at that point it's over. I'm trying to recompose my guys on the bench. Um, but Mark needed me to know, and he came up and he said, Donnie, just so you know, you're going to get asked. The puck was over the line. And that's when I, you know, first heard of it. Um yeah, but, you know, it's 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 disappointing um, that we didn't get an opportunity, but, you know, so be it. We had to. We had to. We had to live with it and move on. Of course, uh, Michigan ended up having to wait uh, all that time because the next day when Maine and uh, RC, when um, St. Lawrence and uh, 
BU went multiple overtimes. Yeah, that was crazy. I was there half so, of that too. Yeah, because I, I think I remember the I think the lead I had written in that game was uh, you know, Colgate and Michigan scored both scored in overtime, but Michigan was the one that counted. And so, <laughs> yeah. So I mean, it, it shows you how old how old we are. So, what is, what is it about Michigan that concerns you? They won the Big Ten champion. No, they did not win the Big Ten. Minnesota did. But what is the concern about Michigan that that concerns you? Well, it's just just how much talent they have. You know, they're 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 a team that uh, you know on a lot of nights you can just open the door and let them go. I mean, they you know um, you know Hughes, you know, Fantelli. I mean, there's there's so many guys that are so dangerous. And you know, we you know we, we, in some ways we'll you know we'll try and approach it like we did Quinnipiac and Harvard. I mean, they are also very skilled teams. Harvard with what 15 NHL draft picks. So you know, we haven't had a chance to really you know get into their game and their structure but um we have a ton of respect for them obviously and and we'll have to find a way to to slow them down and and you know do what we do best and um you know take a look at how you try and contain those type of those type of players but uh you know we know they're going to get opportunities and we've got to limit those chances and and be opportunistic on the ones that we get how important will it be for uh carter guylander to uh play well like he did in the uh in the tournament up in lake placid yeah, it all starts with Carter, obviously. I mean, he gives us a chance to win most nights. And, uh, you know, he was exhausted after Saturday night. You know, he was really cramping up. Um, you know, he just put so much into it. So we've given him a couple of days off here to recover. And uh, he knows, you know, that that's his job and he'll be ready to go. You, I, I had to bring this back to Mark Murphy. You mentioned him. I think he's got other concerns right now with his yes. with the Green Bay Packers. <laughs> no doubt. No doubt. <laughs> so, um, I mean, you. I look at your team. Let's talk about you know. Besides Guylander, you have some great offensive talent: Alex Young, Matt Verboon, Nick Anderson, Colton Young, and as you mentioned, uh, Ross Minton with the game-winning goal. We talk about your team and uh, the approach you have with with uh, with this with this squad. Yeah, I mean, there's you know, you know, we're kind of tucked away here, as you know, in Central New York, and those guys probably don't get you know the accolades that they deserve. They're they're phenomenal players, and you know, Alex can you know break a game open by himself. Obviously, had a huge goal against Harvard uh, on Saturday, but you know, he he and his brother Colton play well together. Uh, Ross has just been a machine for us. I mean, he has an engine that just doesn't quit. I think he's got three overtime winners for us this year, including the one on Friday against Quinnipiac. Um, you know, just a guy that comes to play every day. And, uh, you know, it's, just a, it's a special group. I mean, we have some solid guys on the back end as well. And one of the guys that I think has been a really MVP, uh, you know, one of our most valuable players this year is our transfer from Denver, Reed Irwin. You know, Reed uh, was a process. We're not going to be in the transfer market in a big way anytime soon just because of how, you know, academically, you know, we, we operate. Mm-hmm. But we were able to, you know, to get Reed. And, he, you know, he had to make some huge sacrifices to be a part of this in terms of, you know, summer school and the fact that he gets a fifth year really was the you know was the was the deal maker for us but he comes into a team you know that doesn't know um but we certainly drew on his experience as a, a member of a national championship team and you know he really embraced that and you know, plays a ton of minutes he, when our we had two defensemen out for a lot of that that stretch around there that you mentioned earlier in Pearson Brandon and Anthony Stark were both injured and Reed was playing 30 minutes a game so he's been a huge part of this but uh you know, we, you know, we've had scored some in big games, you know, in uh, a number of goals in some big games this year. But uh, you know, it's 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 a battle every night, and I know that those guys will be ready to play. Well, Don, uh, good luck in Allentown, and uh, keep the run going, and uh, maybe uh, you have a Frozen Four in your hands coming up in a couple weeks. That would be nice, Ken. I appreciate that. 
So which ECAC hockey team will make it to uh, the Frozen Four in Tampa in two weeks? I'm going to put my money on Harvard. I, I, I just I like their game, and I think Quinnipiac, and it's, it's proven time and time again, they get into a close game, especially in a postseason, they, they, they fold. They just they don't seem to know how to play in close games. And uh, as you mentioned, Donnie had close games against Quinnipiac, and I think that was the deciding factor because Quinnipiac, uh, Colgate played a number of games, uh, close games late in the season, and, and I think that's a benefit to them. And Quinnipiac just seems at this time of year to get tight. You know, they grip the sticks a little tighter, and I, I think that really hurts them. So I think it's going to be Harvard getting to Tampa in two weeks. Well, coming up, uh, Ken Fang of Awful Announcing joins me to talk some sports media and night court. You're listening to the Parting Shots Podcast. Meet Andrew Waite. He's a dedicated journalist with a passion for research and a commitment to getting all sides of the story. Whether it's a local issue or an upstate trend, I do the stories and interviews that shed light on what's important to you. Stay informed. Read Andrew Waite in the Daily Gazette. It's my job to offer commentary about what's happening in our community and what it means to our readers. The Gazette, reporting based on accuracy and integrity. It's who we are. It's what we do. Hi, this is Santa Men's basketball coach, Carmen Massarello. You're listening to the Parting Shots Podcast with Daily Gazette sports editor, Ken Schott. Welcome back to the podcast. We're going to do a little media talk, both sports and uh, a comedy show. And uh, Ken Fang from uh, Awful Announcing is kind enough to join us once again. Ken, uh, good to catch up with you. And uh, how are things? Oh, good, Dan. Uh, good, Dan. <laughs> Watching my court something in Dan Fielding. Yeah. So, uh, good, Dan. Good to talk to you. Good to talk to you. Let's let's get into some topics here. Let's start with Jim Nance. Uh, this is going to be his last uh, call on the Final Four uh, for CBS. He'll continue to do the NFL. He's expressed he wants to do uh, the NFL for a while. He wants to call the Masters up until the 100th Masters, which will take him into probably 2035 or something like that. But man, what is Nance's uh, legacy on this? Because I. Yeah, he took over in 1991 after the whole Brett Musburger firing fiasco in 1990. Yeah, I mean, he basically uh, was with CBS through a dark era when they lost the NFL, stayed with them. A lot of announcers like Greg Gumbel left and Sean McDonough. uh, Sean McDonough stayed, but a lot of guys left, uh, like Pat... Pat, I'm trying to think of his name now, but uh, anyway, a lot of guys left. Yeah. He stayed. He was very loyal to CBS, and when the NFL came back, he was right in a perfect position, but he always remained on two events. That was the Masters and the NCAA tournament, and he was there with Billy Packer, uh, who was basically goes all the way back to like the days of NBC when they had the Final Four, and then he was there when Billy Packer left, uh, was partnered with Clark Kellogg, uh, Greg, An- uh, Greg Anthony, and now uh, with uh, Grant Hill and Bill Raftery. And they, he's basically been the one constant through 1991, whether it's one shining moment or the theme song or moving from CBS, all CBS, to basically all uh, to CBS and Turner, now to, uh, Warner Brothers Discovery. I mean, he even goes back to when he was hosting in the, in the, in the mid-'80s, uh, uh, Ken. So, yeah. yeah, Jim Nance has been there for a long time, and so this is going to be his last tournament. It's going to be strange 
not to hear his voice, but I think it's a, a good thing because he's gone from doing a lot of games in the, uh, to basically just doing the Big Ten tournament and basically doing, I think, uh, if you count it all up, 11 games altogether. Yeah. So I think it's a good move. Um, Jim's legacy on college basketball is very solid. He has a great memory. He has a great uh, photographic memory of games he's called and the, and the moments that uh, he's been at. And uh, uh, he'll be missed, definitely. But I think it's a great move that Ian Eagle will be replacing him. But uh, it's definitely going to be strange next year when we don't have Jim Nance on the tournament. I know. I mean, I, when they had the uh, video call uh, a couple weeks ago, I, I got a chance to ask Jim. I had talked to Jim, Jim back in 1990, uh, the week of the Final Four, because I was doing, a, I was going to do a column when I was at the York Daily Record about you know going from hosting uh, the, the, the Final Four to hosting the Masters, and it was just like, and I it was an innocent question. I mean, would you like to take over for Brent one day? And then, like I said, I talked to him earlier that week, and then everything on that April first on that Sunday blew up when uh, it was announced that Musburger right. was being uh, let go. And then all of a sudden, the column I was going to write turned into something completely different. But uh, uh, I was just, I, I still recall that. And it's just, I, I still flabbergasted how, you know, at least Brent's time at, uh, um, and, 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 and at CBS. Right. Absolutely. And uh, it's, been, it's been amazing how he has been, like I said, the constant uh, from basically from when he started, I think it was 1986, I want to say. Yeah, I think it was, yeah. All, yeah, when he actually, uh, he, and don't forget, he co-hosted the tournament with James Brown for a bit. Mm-hmm. And then he went solo. He would host the first weekend with Billy Packer. Uh, and then eventually started doing play-by-play full-time uh, on the tournament. Basically, I think starting in 1996. So, yeah, he's been a constant. Um, He's called great moments, including the very first 16-1 upset. We all remember what, and we're going to talk about this a little bit later on with that about Andrew Mm Camelot. But he was the first one to call the 16-1 upset in the men's tournament with UMBC over Virginia five years ago. Um, And he's called some great moments, and he's had some great uh, calls over the years. it's going to, like I said, you know, I think he decided to go out on his own terms and, you know, have it be done in Houston where he started his career. And he's hoping that uh, to follow the University of Houston, which is a number one seed all the way uh, to Reliance Stadium, uh, NRG Stadium uh, in, in Houston. So, uh, you know, we'll see how far it goes. And, uh, you know, he's actually still going to be on the tournament as, as still doing the uh trophy presentation every year but uh still not going to be the same not having hearing his voice on the tournament well with uh, nance's departure as you mentioned iron eagle will take over which means we'll probably see a different rotation with the regional finals next year and uh, one guy you mentioned there andrew catalan who used to work here in the, in the albany market at wnyt uh, i wrote a story about him last week he's a rising star at cbs uh cbs sports chairman sean mcmanus and uh, jim nance all had wonderful things to say about him uh, he's the number two guy on their golf coverage, and he called another 16-1 upset uh, last week. I mean, do you think he moves up to regional coverage next uh, next year, or regional final coverage next year? I think he has to be a top candidate, Ken. I, I, I really do. He and Steve Lapis and Jamie Erdahl had a great weekend, not only from that 16-1 upset um, with FDU, over Purdue, but they had some fantastic games over in that regional. There were some regionals that had blowouts. 
I think that basically they had basically all close games uh, from Friday night all the way through Sunday night, and they had fun. And, and you could just tell when an announcer and an announcing crew has fun. Yeah. And luckily, you know, Steve and uh, his partner Steve Lapis uh, and Andrew, they aren't just put together for the tournament. They work throughout the season. They work Big East games on CBS Sports Network. They call the Mountain West uh, tournament as well. They brought in Jamie Erdahl, who uh, used to do the SEC on CBS, but has been uh, doing the uh, just recently started doing uh, Good Morning Football on NFL Network. She was a great addition to the team. She was having fun, and they were. Uh, I, I did an article for uh, Awful Announcing on her weekend, but I'm also going to be writing an article on Andrew Catalan about how he is going to be. He's got to be a, a person that um, moves up at least to the uh, regional finals. And I think I was on that same uh, conference call that you are, uh, you are with that, uh, Ken. And we, uh, Sean McManus, the uh, chairman of CBS sports mentioned that the longer that Andrew stays, the further up he's going to move on the depth chart for CBS. Uh, I would definitely think with Greg Gumble, an interesting move that he's going to be leaving the NFL on CBS, but remaining on the studio for the NCAA tournament. I would have to think that Andrew Catalan would move up to at least maybe uh, the, the the D team after uh, Kevin Harlan and, and Ian Eagle and Jim Nance. Mm-hmm. I would definitely think he and James Lofton would move up. And then uh, definitely if, if, if Steve Lapis doesn't move along with Andrew Catalan, Andrew would at least move up with Jim Spernarkel, who has been Ian Eagle's partner for quite a long time. I mean, we don't know what the... The teams are going to be if they're going to just move the announcers up and leave the analysts for next season for Warner Brothers and CBS. But I think that uh, definitely, I think uh, Andrew Catalan is going to be a top candidate to move up to the second week of the tournament. Um, he's deserved. He's just he's done a fantastic job. The only thing I was disappointed in when CBS is not assigning Andrew to the Albany Regional for the first two rounds. That would have been a the perfect story there, kind of coming oh, back absolutely. to the area. But uh, it's not it's not about the stories about getting put him at the right locations and they put Andrew at the right location in Columbus. Well, another story that broke uh, earlier this week, uh, potential layoffs at ESPN. It seems like uh, this is uh, every other year's story with layoffs in ESPN. What, what's, what's going on there? Well, um, Disney, of course, isn't making as much money. The parent company isn't making as much money as, as it has been. Uh, a lot of it has to do with uh, what's been going on at the parks, uh, their amusement parks. Uh, Basically, a little side. You need basically a five-week salary to go over to to, to go to Disneyland or Disney World. But aside from that, yeah. uh, <laughs> the fact is is that they're not making much money as possible. Uh, there's talk about maybe a sale of ESPN down the road. I don't think that's going to happen. But they basically have made ESPN its own entity as, instead of being part of Disney. Uh, still part of Disney, but it's not part of under the Disney quote-unquote corporate umbrella it's just going to be its own entity so you know you're not making as much money so what are you going to do you have to lay off people and there's a lot of people who make a lot of money at espn stephen a smith basically hinted at this a couple of days ago saying um people in front of the camera maybe part of it part of the layoffs too uh he even said that he might be part of it but i doubt that they would do that to him yeah um but I would definitely think maybe some sports center anchors might go. Remember the great layoff of 2017? We saw a lot of anchors go, like Jamie Sire and Sarah Walsh. Uh, they left. Uh, a lot of announcers, too, that were laid off. Uh, 
I would think that something like that, it's not probably going to be a bigger bloodbath as it was in 2017, but I would think some some big names that you may see uh, that we know uh, in front of the camera and maybe some names that uh, Ken, you and I are knowing from covering ESPN over the years, maybe even behind the camera, some famous producers might be going as well. So uh, it, it's something that we have to keep an eye on. It could happen any day. Uh it's. I remember 2017 when it happened. Uh, I was at awful announcing, and basically, it was for about a good 12-hour period, adding names as people were telling me, telling us on social media that they had lost their jobs. Um, I think a good. I don't remember how many people had lost their jobs uh, in 2017, but it was like in the hundreds. If I'm not, if I, if I don't, if I recall correctly, it was really, really insane how that happened. But. Um, I don't think we'll see that many, but I think we'll be shocked at some of the names that we see. Yeah. Well, another story involving ESPN involves Monday Night Football and uh, changes in the production crew and yeah. whether Troy Aikman had a role in that. Uh, in the all honesty, do, do football fans care about that stuff, or is that I mean, or, or is there a legitimate concern about this? Well, you know, ever since the blogs and and sports media has been covered a lot closer i think it gets to be an interesting story but i think overall people watching the product don't care they really don't they just want to see if their team is going to be on the game if the if the buffalo bills are going to be on or or how the joe, joe and uh, troy are going to call the games they don't really care who's you know punching the buttons in the truck but uh it's always interesting for people like you and me but it's an interesting story that uh the current the the, the people who were the, the producer and director, Phil Dean, was one of them. Uh, he was basically, they were chopped by uh, ESPN. Uh, they made a quick statement to us at Awful announcing that it was Stephanie Drewley, who was the head of production, said it was her decision to make that change. But uh, according to uh, sports media maven Andrew Marchand and also John Orand, they were being on top of the story as well. Uh, they basically said that uh, Troy Aikman wasn't happy with the production team and how things were being done. And so ESPN decided to make a change. Um, they took their top college football team and decided to make them the Monday Night Football production crew in the truck. They'll also do the Super Bowl uh, as well now that the ESPN has a Super Bowl quality announcing team in Bucket Aikman. Um, you know, as, as you mentioned, do people care uh, about about this uh, people in you know upstate New York? Do they really care in central New York? Do they care about this whole thing? No, they just want to watch their, their their teams. They want to watch what's going on. They want to watch the Patriots. They want to watch the Jets. They want to watch the Bills. They want to make sure that that game is on. So they don't care who's punching the number, the punching the buttons of the truck. But at the same time, you know, it's it's a little bit of drama. Uh, it's always interesting to cover. It's always interesting to see what happens. Yep. Uh, whether, you know, Troy decided to make a call and say, hey, look, uh, get these guys out of the truck. Um, I don't know. But it's it's always interesting to see what always happens big, uh, at ESPN because ESPN is a sports behemoth and drama always seems to happen out of Bristol. And, and that's the way it always happens. Yes. Well, speaking of drama, Bally Sports recently filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy with the, the number of uh, teams that they 
cover, and especially Major League Baseball. Uh, yeah. to, I mean, are we seeing a changing of how we're going to be able to watch games? I mean, we're st- lots of streaming right now, but I mean, with with the bankruptcy and you know, with the potential, you know, I mean, teams, you know, fans could lose their ability to see teams. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's not going to affect people in, in upstate New York no. because, yes, because that's pretty stable, or SNY, the Mets. That's that's pretty stable as well because and, the teams basically own the own the uh, our, uh, regional sports networks. But as far as Valley's concerned, uh, those like uh, especially in Arizona and San Diego, uh, there's a mispayment in, in Arizona. Uh, do they expect a mispayment in, in for the Padres, uh, especially that that payment's coming up on uh, the opening day. The Texas Rangers have a very expensive. Uh, Rights fee that Valley's doesn't like either. So those three teams are the ones that Valley's is trying to renegotiate, or at least trying to say, "Hey, look, we don't want to be paying as much." Those those uh, contracts are very uh, favorable for the teams, and Valley's, of course, uh, came into this. The, it, was, well, it was basically owned by Sinclair, uh, which owns a lot of local stations. Uh, they thought that they could make a national network, but they don't have the experience that. Fox does in bundling, nor ESPN when it actually purchased those uh, RSNs before uh, turning around and flipping them to uh, flipping up to Sinclair, which uh, used Bally's to uh, for uh, naming rights. So a lot of money, and I know this is going to make a lot of people hair hair hurting talking about this, but it's just about, basically about rights payments, and when you miss rights payments. Teams aren't going to be happy about that. And they, teams use that to basically help fund and pay the bills, and especially for those high high salaries that they have to pay. Um, Major League Baseball depends on uh, local rights fees probably more than the NBA and the NHL. So when you see hear about payments being missed, that's a big deal. So Major League Baseball is hoping to take those rights back. They're trying to use that as an excuse to take those rights back and perhaps produce their own regional networks and negotiate contracts with those cable companies in those areas. Uh, is it going to work? We're going to have to wait and see. I know that uh, Houston, is, is it, which is not part of Bally's, but uh, part of uh, Discovery, Warner Brothers Discovery at one time, uh, they're they're looking to negotiate a new contract with uh, cable companies and Major League Baseball is hoping to do that. Uh, if we see this happen, uh, it, per, Arizona would probably be the very first one to do so under the Bally's uh, umbrella. Major League Baseball is trying to negotiate there. San Diego, if that uh, payment is missed, look for Major League Baseball to take all of those Contracts under balance. I think it's nineteen teams. Uh, Ken, that's a lot of teams. Yeah, it is, yeah. They will, yeah, they will take those rights, take them away from Bally's and Sinclair. Try to produce those games. They'll say that you know, don't worry, fans, you're still going to see your games. Uh, the teams may take a hit originally for uh, the, the local revenue that they normally would have gotten from the Bally's uh, regional networks, and then they'll try to find a streaming. Uh, uh, you know, a, a try is trying to see streaming service or try to produce their own. Uh, is it going to work? We don't know, but this is a new era, and basically, we're in a wild, wild west situation here. Uh, would, could we have predicted this last year, Ken? Absolutely not. No. So, it's definitely going to be interesting to see what happens, especially for the 
Diamondbacks, the Texas Rangers, and the and this uh, and the Padres, especially as payments are missed uh, from Bally's and Sinclair, and it's going to be very interesting to see what happens. Our last sports topic here, and uh, you know, we, uh, Tim McCarver's passing uh, a few weeks ago at the age of eighty-one. Uh, he was a lightning rod for fans, uh, both good and bad. And then that before the era of uh, social media, I mean, I, I thought Tim was outstanding. I mean, he could be a maybe talk too much sometimes, but that's the analyst's job to talk and point things out. People didn't like that. They wanted they wanted to rather have a silent broadcast. But but what, what do you think his legacy was as a broadcaster? Okay, well, it's difficult for me as a Red Sox fan because we hated Tim McCarver, but. As we used hey, to, hey he's he played was, for you. He played for you for a little bit. Come on. I know, I know. He played <laughs> in 1975, but um, you know, fans forget about that. You know, you know when 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 you they all thought he was a Yankees fan. But besides that, I will say that of the there were probably two announcers that taught people the sport extremely well. One was John Madden, the other was Tim McCarver. Tim would tell you the strategy. He would tell you what was going on. He could predict it before it happened. Was it? Did I think he was too verbose? Yes, I do think that. But at the same time, he was a guy who could basically take what's happening on the field, predict trends before they happen, and also be very accommodating to whatever partner he had, whether it was Al Michaels. He worked originally in a three-man booth with Al Michaels and Jim and uh, Jim Palmer. They made it work very well. Al Michaels says to this day, it was one of the best three-man booths he has ever been. He's not. He's never been in favor of it, but he, he has a very high regard for both how Jim and Tim worked with each other. And he still and he was good good friends with Tim McCarver to the, until the day he passed. Um, yeah, Tim McCarver had worked. I mean, he, he basically he was held in such high regard. That not only was on he he was on with ABC, he went to CBS when they had the brief uh, four year period of contracts, and then he went to Fox, and he also worked with NBC too at the, for the game of the week too with Bob Costas for a little bit mm-hmm. uh, when he started his broadcasting career. So he basically worked with all the networks that broadcast baseball on a national basis, and of course he was well regarded with the uh, with the Mets, uh, working on WWOR with Ralph Kiner. He also did work with the uh, with the Yankees. As well, after the Mets dropped him, did some work with the uh, Giants, and also uh, ended his broadcast career with uh, Fox Sports Midwest, uh, working with the Cardinals, with, which is his original team. So, I think his legacy is, as a broadcaster is well high regarded amongst the networks, amongst also Mets fans especially, because uh, I think that's when he got his really was in his heyday was working with Ralph Kiner and uh, how he worked very well together with Ralph uh, throughout the, the 1980s and to the 1990s. So yeah, his, his legacy is very, is very, uh, is, is going to be well regarded, especially, uh, you know, when you think about uh, baseball broadcast. And I said, there were two people who I think taught well in the booth and it was John Madden and Tim McCarver. So you got to think about those two and how, what they did for their sport in the booth. And of course he started his broadcast career with the Phillies in 1980 yeah. after his playing days. And I remember one thing I remember vividly about when the Phillies clinched the um, NLCS against the Houston Astros in 1980. And back then, 
the local TV broadcast could show the game with the local announcers as opposed to now it's all national. They, they could obviously show that. And McCarr was just laughing after Gary Maddox caught that uh, fly ball to end the game in the bottom of the 10th inning. And he's just laughing and just he's, he's having a good time. But uh, I don't know why he get the Phillies got rid of him. I don't know if there was a problem with him and somebody else. But, uh, yeah, it's, it's a shame. Tim, Tim – uh, he was he was good. I mean, there are times I would gripe about him, but uh, I, I think all in all, he he was one of the best out there. So let's um, move away from sports and talk about one of our favorite comedy uh, shows, Night Court, which ran f- from 1984 to 1992. And when I first heard that they were going to revive this series uh, with Melissa Rauch uh, as uh, as a lead. Um, I was hoping, please be good. Just please be good. And I think for the most part, it has been. It just is. I think it's done an outstanding job. Yeah, I, I, I'm four episodes in. I saw the premiere of what, as they happened, and Ken, I was Melissa Rouse is a very good actress. Um, <laughs> excuse me, she was on Big Bang Theory uh, as Bernadette, and this role is so opposite of that. Bernadette was, you know, using a New Jersey accent and a very high pitched voice. She's using a real voice over here. Mm-hmm. She's basically playing the straight person to the as as basically, you know, as as the original show. The as you know, um Harry Anderson played Harry Stone, the the judge with a bunch of crazies uh, in the courtroom playing the start playing the uh, straight man. She's doing the same role. Luckily we have John Larroquette as uh, as a as a connection playing Dan Fielding the same role but a different Dan Fielding, yes. not the misogynistic Dan Fielding who was <laughs> always going after Marky Post uh, in the original show. He is a much he is uh, showing a lot more vulnerability. His wife has died. Uh, he's a much different person. Um, Abby, uh, which was of course being played by Melissa Roush, goes in and convinces him to come back to the to the to the to the night court instead of playing the prosecutor. He's a defense attorney, yeah. so uh, totally opposite. I really love how this is going. Uh, they have a nice, diverse cast. Um, they have a nice. They have some writing in there. Um, is it going to pale in comparison to the original? Yeah, of course it is. Nothing's going to be good as the original. But on its own, I, I love the way the acting is. Melissa Roush is, is perfect in the role as Abby Stone. And uh, she wants to help. She wants to be the person who reaches out to everybody. Uh, and we find a little bit more about her. Uh, you know, I, 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 in the third episode, we found she's al- alcoholic. Yeah. So, And she's, you know, vulnerable. She worries that she can't hold up to the legacy of her dad. And Dan is the one that brings her out of it. I think that that was a great turnaround. So I think that this is a very good show. It holds up quite well, and the writing is quite good. And I think that's the most important thing. And the interesting thing, too, is that uh, Melissa Rauch's husband is also an executive producer along with the show. So uh, Winston Rauch, he's also – they work together on a movie um, on that as well. Uh, and Melissa Rauch, she's, she's just perfect in the role. I, I'm, I'm enjoying her quite a bit. Yeah, the, the, yeah, John Larroquette, Dan Fielding character. I, I was going to be, I was intrigued by how they're going to handle that because obviously, in this politically correct, wor- uh, correct world, you can't have him being a, a chauvinist, a sexist, and chasing after women. And you see, a, I think a more mature Dan Fielding, and I think he's acting like a father figure to, to Abby Stone. Absolutely, and I just love the fact that he comes in. He's a broken man, basically. Uh, convinced to come back and then the more he he does things the more he wants to help (laughs) would you have thought this when you saw the original show no but i think that 
it's great that the Dan Fielding character has evolved and he is becoming a person that, uh, you know, more of the Marky Post character, the more the, of the, the one that, you know, cares about the, the, the while he still doesn't truly care about his, his clients, he's once he's trying to help. And I think that's a great thing. And the one thing I love the most with Dan Fielding, he still reads a newspaper when he's in the yes. uh, cafeteria. <laughs> I, that's, I love it. I love it. <laughs> he's, he has that and um, some great cameos. Wendy Malik. Uh, ever since, uh, you know, of course, Just Shoot Me and, of course, you know, Lost in Cleveland, mm-hmm. uh, playing against type. She's playing a criminal uh, in the first episode, yeah. in the episode that, that she was uh, doing a cameo. Uh, great to see that. And, uh, by the way, uh, uh, one little thing about Wendy Maddock, also in Shrinking on uh, Apple TV, playing against type as a doctor. So she's she's a great actress. So uh, she can basically do anything. And I can basically read the phone book. I'll be really – or read the newspaper out loud. Because <laughs> uh, her character reads the newspaper as well. But, uh, yeah, I'm loving this. And just seeing that NBC is uh, – is, Committing to it, I'm, I'm very happy to see that. And we do find out that Harry Stone did not marry Christine. Uh, no, nope. it was uh, a, obviously it was a, a person who was in his courtroom, Gina, uh, played by um, Faith Ford of Murphy Brown fame. So I'm yes. happy. I'm happy that I, mean, I was worried when I, I saw that uh, Faith Ford was going to be involved as uh, Harry's. Uh, uh, husband or wife, I'm saying, and just say, don't please, please don't be Christine. Don't be Christine. I could have accept. Right. I could have accept though, if she had played Billy, that uh, was played by Ellen Foley. Right, uh, right, right. I mean, I could have right. gone. I, I could have said, okay, I don't have a problem with that. Maybe Ellen Foley didn't want to be involved uh, with that, but uh, I, I like the fact that uh, they. I, the other thing, one thing I'm disappointed in is were. Abby Stone came from. Uh, we found, finally found out it was Scanley Scanley Atlas outside of Syracuse. I was hoping somewhere in the <laughs> Albany area that we could. <laughs> but uh, well, yeah, I mean, I, I, this has been a fun. It's been fun. I, uh, if I'm in, the, I'm in the office on Tuesday nights, usually I'll, I'll have it on instead of sports, and yeah, it's, it's, it's enjoyable. I mean, obviously, they, like I said, they couldn't do what they did back in the 80s be you know sexist and all that stuff but it's it's a good show i mean it's it's, it's it feels like i'm watching it all over again it's, it's just a shame that harry anderson uh marky post uh charles robinson who played mac uh yeah. or have, 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 moved, have passed away uh it would be interesting to see i there's a couple storylines i wish i'd love to see if they i'd like to see dan talk more about his his wife and how they met uh, yep. I, I would also like to see if if there's any way they can bring. If you remember the uh, story arc with Leon, the orphan boy. I mean, do, do, yes, I'd like to see. Then yes. maybe Max' wife, bring uh, Quan Lee back if uh, if uh, they can do that. So just to you know have her make it a cameo, or even uh, Raz, uh, played by Marsha Warfield. I'm not sure if yes. uh, we'll see. Um, uh, um, uh, Richard uh, Richard Mole, I think it is. Uh, yeah, Richard Mole. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I don't know if he'll yeah. come back or not, but uh, yeah, it's been a lot of fun, and I, I, I enjoy watching it. And I'm, I, I, I uh, apologize to AMC if I'm stealing the Talking Dead format here. <laughs> so, <laughs> Talking Night Court. So, Ken, uh, appreciate a few minutes. It's a lot of fun, and uh, we'll catch up soon. Absolutely, Ken. Thanks for having me on. All right, that's Ken Fang of Awful Announcing. I'll be back to wrap up the podcast and have the latest winner in the Daily Gazette's auto racing contest 
in just a moment. If you really want to know what's going on in your community, you have to read the Daily Gazette. We don't take a side. We're right down the middle and we're going to get to the truth. Our reporters and photographers are out in the field bringing you updates every minute with trust, accuracy, and integrity from the first page to the last page, independent, probing journalism. We're finding out what's going on in the community where nobody else is covering. It's who we are. It's what we do. Hi, this is Mark Kestesher, the voice of the NBA on ESPN Radio and college football on ESPN Radio. I grew up in Gilderland. I'm a proud member of the 518, and I go back over 30 years with Ken Schott. And when I'm not listening to his Schottsky Radio, I'm listening to the Parting Shots podcast with Daily Gazette sports editor Ken Schott. Here's Ken. Back to wrap up the podcast. The Week 5 winner in the Daily Gazette's auto racing contest was Michael Walker of Rotterdam with 55 points. Michael wins a $50 ShopRite gift card. Congratulations, Michael. The VIP winner was Jerry Peel of Frankensons with 35 points. I'll announce the auto racing contest winner's name, and that winner's name will appear in Friday's Daily Gazette. To play, go to dailygazette.com and click on the auto racing contest banner. Keep checking out DailyGazette.com and the print edition for the latest updates in news and sports on how COVID-19 is affecting us in the capital region. I want to thank all the doctors, nurses, and first responders who are dealing with this situation. We appreciate the job you're doing in this difficult time. If you have not gotten vaccinated or a booster shot, please do so. Do it for yourself, do it for your family, and do it for your friends. That wraps up another edition of the Parting Shots podcast. I want to thank Don Vaughn and Ken Fang for coming on the show. If you have questions or comments about the podcast, email them to me at shot, that's S-C-H-O-T-T, at dailygazette.com. Follow me on Twitter at Slapshots. The views expressed on the Parting Shots podcast are not necessarily those of the Daily Gazette Company. The Parting Shots podcast is a production of the Daily Gazette Company, I'm Daily Gazette Sports Editor Ken Schott. Thanks for listening, and I'll catch you next time. From the Party Shots Podcast Studio in Schenectady, New York, good day, good sports.